This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. We went and bushwhacked our way across these burned-out tamarisk and uh, had to use our canoes as, as battering rams to get through these incredibly dense brush. And what we discovered at the end of that uh, was that there was maybe five CFS of fresh water from the pulse flow that was pouring into the Rio Hardy. And um, a, a scene in the book is, is when Jorge uh, discovered this. So the rest of us were a little distracted from having done this pretty horrendous bushwhacking. And he called us over and showed us this little trickle of water that was going into the swamp. And he, he said, the rivers are communicating. This episode comes to you from a back porch in the San Juan River Valley of Bluff, Utah. Zach Podmore is my guest. Late in 2019, Zach published his first book titled Confluence. Zach has been a journalist for much of his career and a river runner all of his life. He first floated the San Juan River at 14 months of age on his parents' raft and today lives a lazy 15-minute walk from that very river. This book, Confluence, is a collection of independent essays Zach wrote at the conclusion of several Western river trips that all seem to share a thread bearing the burden of defining waste, navigating the concept of belonging to a landscape, and of loving his mom. I was able to sit with Zach on his porch near the end of this past winter and learn about him as a writer and about his book. This is what I call a neighborhood conversation. You can hear in the background a cacophony of birds, a backhoe doing street work, a garbage truck, and the ubiquitous chicken. Zach, welcome to the River Radius. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Sam. Would you introduce yourself, please? Tell us who you are as a human and tell us who you are as a writer. My name is Zach Podmore. I'm a writer and journalist living in Bluff, Utah. I currently work for the the Salt Lake Tribune uh, newspaper reporting on, on southeast Utah. That's kind of a more recent development in my life. Before that, I was primarily defined, I guess, if, if somebody had asked me. Not that many people have, but uh, as a river runner, uh, I've been running rivers my whole life, starting with the river that is just about a half mile from us right now, the San Juan River. Um, it was my first river trip I did about 30 years ago when I was one year old. I've um, been doing it ever since, and it's great to be on a river podcast. Well, we're glad to have you, and yeah, the, the the river you can see it; it's right over there. So out there in, in listening land, it's uh, it's just below the bluff in Bluff, Utah, and you'll hear the birds come and go. I think they just quieted down for a little bit. Who else have you written for? So you're you're working for the Salt Lake Tribune. What other uh, periodicals have you written with? I worked for Canoe and Kayak Magazine as an editor for two and a half years, um, and then I've freelanced for a bunch of different outlets: uh, Outside Magazine, Four Corners. Free Press, uh, Sierra Magazine, and then other newspapers and smaller magazines around. Mm-hmm. And you, in the last uh, in the last maybe year or so, uh, two years, you, you've you've begun a, a project with um, Salt Lake Tribune. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I just started about eight months ago. Uh, it's a, a two year fellowship doing rural reporting with the Salt Lake Tribune. We live in a really uh, interesting part of the state here. It's uh, home to Bears Ears National Monument, and the Navajo Nation overlaps with a big part of, of San Juan County in, in southeast Utah. There's a lot of really interesting stories that haven't been told as much from a local journalist in the past, so I'm really 
uh, fortunate to be able to to spend a couple of years just doing everything from profiles of local artists in the community to political stories that require some investigation to just covering the the day-to-day events that are going on in, in this really fascinating part of the country. You have a book out, Confluence is the title. When did the, when did the book come out? The book came out in October 2019. What do you think your book is about? And maybe the question is, because you wrote it, you actually know what it's about. What is your book about? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, the easy way to answer that is the Confluence is five long essays, each one about a different river in the western U.S. from uh, Washington State down to Texas with a few stops in between um, and a a number of shorter essays mixed in there as well. Each one of the longer pieces follows a river trip that I took down these rivers and then tries to bring in reporting, kind of the first-person experience of what it's like to go down these rivers that are really different from each other. The the Rio Grande is very different from the Elwha River up in Washington. Uh, one's in a rainforest, one's along the, the border in, in the desert. So I try to give people a sense of what it's like to be on these rivers for people who might not have had the chance to go out there yet, but also trying to tie in uh, social, environmental issues that are going on in that region and uh, then my own kind of personal experience in in history and relationship with that place. One thing that that struck me in reading the book was it's so easy for a river story to be, you know, like a holy shit, there I was kind of story. And we're kind of all listening to a story thinking it's kind of a good story, but maybe not worth uh, writing a book about. I didn't feel that with these stories. And then you take a very different angle. In fact, it feels to me that much of the stories are are um, pathways into other topics and other other conversations, and not necessarily about the the full existence of the river trip that you're on. Was that a was is that intentional? Is that your 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 methodology in in writing those stories? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I didn't want them to just be adventure stories, which I think it's harder to to pull off. I've read some some great river tales, but you have to have a pretty exciting story to, to make that stand on its own, and I didn't necessarily have that in any of these cases. Um, I think the more interesting story for me as a writer and, and as somebody who likes to, to read similar types of writing about rivers is how does this experience of being out there floating through, floating one of the essays about riding a flash flood uh, down the Little Colorado River into the Grand Canyon, and that experience is exciting in itself, but then it becomes a lot more interesting when you're looking at uh, the history of this place and, in this case, this proposal to build a, gi- a giant tram that would take 10,000 people a day from the rim of the Grand Canyon down to the the confluence of the Colorado and Little Colorado Rivers. And once you start to see the trip through that, kind of news or environmental or controversial context, there's a lot more to talk about that ups the stakes of the the story uh, beyond just how's it going to go riding this flash flood? Well, how's it going to go for somebody who wants to, to do a similar trip 50 years from now if this, this tram is built? So for me, it, it makes it more interesting. I, I did a lot of 
trips during this period that you know I didn't write much about because um, I didn't think they had that interesting additional context to talk about, and I'm not as interested in just uh, telling the story of of what I, what it was like to be out there um, if there isn't something else to to bring in. Can you read from your book? If you're at home and you have the book Confluence, you can go to page 31. Uh, we're going to start with I Need to Orient. Zach's going to read to you for two pages from his book. Okay. I need to orient myself. I walk out my front door and down into the floodplain of the San Juan River, a tributary of the Colorado. I can see the stone warrior lying on the eastern horizon. He's pasted black against the clouds, which are just starting to glow in the evening light. His eyes, nose, chin, and the great mound of his arms on his chest are so distinct against the sky, he seems ready to spring up and take to the battle again. I walk for 15 minutes until I'm standing beside the brown waters of the San Juan. Crouching on the bank, I plunge my hand beneath the surface. My head is bowed towards my knees, my toes just staying dry, and my eyes slide shut. I reach out with my fingertips to see in the dark. The current presses past, lifting my hand with its pulse. This is how I remember where I am and how I got here. I reach into the rolling San Juan and imagine my way downstream through the canyons where no road follows. I feel where the water cuts through the ridge of sandstone and into the domes of ancient seabed. This is the first river I floated, my car seat strapped to the wooden deck of an army surplus raft when I was 14 months old, my mother carrying me around the small rapids. For miles, the San Juan sparkles around graceful bends that canyon walls have been instructed to follow. Reaching farther, the current slackens, the mud and sand and uranium and its waters sifting back to the riverbed. The river pours over a sloped sliding waterfall and halts in the clear dead waters of Lake Powell. Where jet boats rip down the main channel, I turn right and press on. The current begins to move again beyond the borders of the reservoir. I'm in a new river, the Colorado, and I head upstream through the explosive white water of Cataract Canyon, past Satan's Gut, and slide, in, slide through the confluence with the Green River. I move through lazy golden waters and across the valley that holds the town of Moab, then in then on into another Carmen Red Canyon burnished with black patina, where my parents scattered Steve's ashes 25 years ago. I reach past the arch scaffolding of an old wooden bridge destroyed by a tourist's wayward campfire a few years back. From the remnants of its deck sway a few chunks of charcoal. Just beyond the river splits. Both canyons take me home. Right goes to the Dolores River, the crazy meanders of rose-colored canyons lined with sage and Mormon tea, then pinyon and juniper, then, as you move higher, ponderosa pine. Most years, that river is a limpid creek, choked off from its headwaters by six million cubic yards of rock, gravel, and sand, pressed into a 270-foot-tall plug. Beyond is the place where my parents built their yurt. I go left after the burned bridge, passing through Westwater Canyon before crossing the Colorado state line and the beach where we scattered my mother's ashes. I don't stop until I've gone through the heart of a city, another canyon, the grassy banks of ranch lands pocked with fracking wells, and up two right turns on smaller tributaries. I've reached the creek that rumbles past my childhood home. 
Years ago, I would sit by its waters, carving sticks into the semblance of whitewater kayaks and sending them through deadly six-inch-high Niagara's. I'd watch them disappear around the corner, curious where they'd end up. Now, after months and years of living out of kayaks and rafts, I've paddled every mile of river from the mouth of that creek to the sea. I've paddled the Dolores from the dam and the San Juan from my house to where both rivers meet the Colorado. I've seen how this landscape is sewn together by water. And now, I've come to rest along the banks of a river in Utah, where locals tell me I'll never belong. I pull my hand dripping from the San Juan and stand on the beach with stiff legs. My movement startles a flock of Canada geese that have walked up on the sandbar while I was crouched motionless. They lumber into the air, honking and annoyed. What are you, uh, what are you trying to talk about? What are you personally trying to talk about in terms of belonging to a community and belonging to a landscape? What, what, is, your, what is your push because this comes up a lot in your book, uh, I think it comes up a lot in your book. What's your push on that? What's your what's what are you what are you expressing? Yeah, I think it's there's a tension in the book between uh, getting to know this landscape throughout my life through running rivers and, and through living on it, and also the knowledge that my my lineage, ancestral lineage, doesn't go back very far in the area. Um, I'm second generation. When I was growing up in in Western Colorado, you know, people would brag about being fifth generation Coloradan. My wife is uh, fifth or sixth generation uh, Coloradan, and when you move to a place like Bluff on the edge of the Navajo Nation and and near the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation, uh, you start to realize just how kind of uh, silly it is to to brag about even five generations going back. The the European history here is just so short compared to the, the people who have been living on this landscape for hundreds and thousands and, and tens of thousands of years. So the theme of belonging comes up in this book, both because, well, because I'm talking about these uh, three different uh, histories in particular that are, that are part of this landscape. The Ute Mountain Ute people who have been here a very long time, and then the the Mormon pioneers that came here in the 1880s and have uh, deeper roots than than I do, and then my own family history, which brought my parents to the Dolores River and the San Juan River in the 1980s. So there's all these different layers of of what it means to belong, and and everyone is, you know, all these people of European descent are out there staking their claim in various ways of saying why they, you know, have a history on the landscape that's significant, but they all pale in comparison to the the deep Native American history. So the experience on rivers and landscape is is something that grounds me in this place, but I'm also talking about how it's going to take, you know, generations and generations to develop the kind of relationship that, that other people have who have you know had their ancestors actually go through that and and live here for that long would you tell us your mom's name uh ruth and ruth uh there's a connection in the book there's a lot of connections in the book about your mom with your mom and can you tell us more about that relationship of your mom with the book yeah i grew up in glenwood springs colorado Um, both my parents were teachers 
and former raft guides and uh, that meant we had the summers off and we had they had the skills and the equipment to to go down these amazing uh, rivers mostly in Utah um, but all around the the four corners and up to Idaho and the Green River and Dolores River and, and San Juan and Chama and Salmon and all these amazing week-long or so trips that I'm sure many listeners are familiar with. Um, and it was just a really amazing way to grow up, uh, being able to do this every summer. And my mom uh, developed lung cancer when she was 53 in, in 2014 and died pretty quickly. And the essays that are in Confluence all took place in the wake of that. So that was something that was really shaping my worldview, both thinking back on my childhood on rivers and then going on these river trips uh, after losing my mom and kind of having a new perspective on yeah, both my own history and, and wow, what an amazing, you know, lucky experience I had to have such a, a great river running mom. Tell us more about that first chapter and, and the, the metaphorical uh, statement about your mom. Please. Yeah, the book opens with a, a story my mom told me a number of times growing up about a trip she took down Cataract Canyon at, at high water on, on the Colorado River. Uh, a few years before I was born, uh, she was rowing a raft uh, through the big drops um, and got swept out of the raft in this feature known as, as Satan's Gut, a big hole in, in the river there that uh, many people who have experienced it remember. <laughs> and uh, she was pulled to the bottom of the river and, and held under for a long time, and it was a really scary experience for her, I think, and, and one of the worst swims she had in many years of river running. She was held under for a long time and then kind of let up in the at the end of the rapid, and her life jacket pulled her back to the surface, and, and people pulled her into the raft. And I think why that story kept coming back to me after uh, she passed away and why I chose to open the book with it is that uh, losing a loved one is a lot like being swept off a raft in, in a rapid. You're kind of riding down this uh, through life on your little comfortable platform of your habits and, and routines and, and goals and kind of idea of where you're going to go. And then all of a sudden you're thrown overboard into this force that's a lot bigger than yourself into, you know, loss and, and grief. And all of a sudden all you can do is kind of hold on and wait to see what this force is going to do with you. There, there's not a lot of control you have. And eventually you start to come up, hopefully, and, and the run out to the rapid and get a breath and uh, be able to start to recover from this. And I think the, the five essays in Confluence are these trips that I was able to do after uh, my mom's death that allowed me to, to come back to the surface and kind of get a new perspective on things and, and get a little bit of relief from that, uh, that tragedy of her loss. <laughs> Times are tricky right now. There are several acute pressing situations in our United States and across our planet. Near to where I live, humans of the Navajo Nation are enduring some of the highest COVID-19 infection rates. If you are interested in supporting measures to diminish this crisis, you can donate directly to the Navajo Nation. Go to 
www.nndoh.org forward slash donate dot html again that is www.nndoh.org forward slash donate dot html that nndoh stands for navajo nation department of health this is not a paid advertisement this is simply the river radius podcast offering an option to support humans personally from our household we have donated to this fund again that website is www.nndoh.org forward slash donate dot html thank you at some point in your in your life as a as a young boater you um, took part in two source to sea trips across the basins of the the green and colorado rivers can you tell us about those trips and and i, I want to say too that those aren't essays in the book but they are they're important to some of the essays and some of the journeys you take and so and we'll dig into that in a little bit yeah, uh, right after I graduated from college in 2011, uh, my friend and I wanted to go on the longest river trip we, we could <laughs> to uh, to celebrate graduation. We decided we'd try to do the entire Green and Colorado Rivers, so we went up to the Wind River Mountains in Wyoming in October and got in pack rafts and started following a little snowy creek downstream and eventually got into sea kayaks and paddled through you know, Lador and Desolation, Labyrinth Canyons down to the confluence with the Colorado and Cross Lake Powell and got our, met up with our Grand Canyon permit on time and joined some folks through there and then continued on all the way down to where the river dries up along the border with Mexico. So tell us, uh, tell us about that, the end part of, of that source to sea down at the Mexican border in terms of water, boating, hiking. Yeah, so the Colorado River is you know, used by cities all across the Southwest and, and farms and, and industry. Uh, so by the time it actually makes it to the border with Mexico, 90% of the river about has been taken taken out of the riverbed. And then right at the border, uh, the last 10% um, that's left in there, usually about 800 CFS or so, goes into a canal. And then it's just concrete canals uh, through all these farmlands down towards the the Sea of Cortez. Um, so we uh, were able to sea kayak down through the series of reservoirs along the kind of California-Arizona border and then pack rafted up to the, the border and then got in the concrete canals and floated for five days across northern Mexico there. And... And when the canals dried up, we walked for a few days to make it down to the, the ocean. So it's it's a pretty wild experience, especially having followed it all the way from the source up in Wyoming and seeing the river grow in size. It's a pretty wild experience to watch it shrink and start to get siphoned off into all these canals and then to to dry up at the border and, and then trying to imagine what it was once like. You know, the delta wasn't like a typical riverbed, and as, as many deltas are, it was spread out over 3,000 square miles of wetlands, uh, all these lagoons and pools and and channels and habitat in the middle of what's otherwise a pretty inhospitable desert yeah. down there. And, and now it's mostly lettuce fields and uh, a little bit of agricultural runoff that forms these swamps that are remain incredibly important habitat 
because you know in the Sonoran Desert there isn't a lot of other places for especially migrating birds to to stop over and and have a place with some some water and food to to make that journey possible how long did you hike did you just walk two days and had you given up on the boats or were you also carrying your boats with you we had our pack rafts with us so yeah we had them rolled up and yeah uh, and then we when we made it to the estuary or what used to be the estuary the head of the the gulf of california we got back in our pack rafts and then floated down the tidal channels mm-hmm. um for a couple of days um it was about 40 miles i think we did on the ocean in when the tide's going out you have pretty good current and then when the tide's coming in we had to get out and walk along the bank so in your second main essay in the book titled delta you dig in on that dry estuary that that dry zone from the mexican border down to the gulf of baja because the pulse flow is happening uh, would you explain the pulse flow yeah the pulse flow was an agreement that was signed uh, pretty soon after we did our source to sea trip and and hiked across the delta i think it was signed in 2012 but the event happened in 2014 and it was an agreement between uh, the governments of u.s and mexico and a number of environmental groups that had all of these uh, water rights um, to water stored in in lake mead i believe and there was a, a few months where they released water into the Delta for the first time that was done in any kind of significant and organized way. So it was the first time that there was a big release of water for environmental uh, purposes in the Delta since it dried up uh, in the 1960s. Um, and I went down there with a, a few people from Canoe and Kayak Magazine and uh, caught the tail end of the pulse flow and was able to uh, paddle across um, the area that we had walked through a few years before. And we were there with this uh, hydrologist from a Mexican university who had been studying the, the Delta region for 30 years. And at the time we were there, the, the water was moving towards uh, this kind of permanent swamp of of seawater and agricultural runoff known as the Rio Hardy, which uh, connects with the ocean at the, the highest of high tides. And uh, Jorge, the professor, was uh, trying to confirm if the water from the pulse flow was reaching this uh, this marsh. In in his mind, he, he, or the way he explained it, was if the, the pulse flow was, was connecting, then the Colorado River would have in, in some way have reconnected with the ocean, even if it was kind of a a symbolic event down there because there was never a, a continuous river channel even during the pulse flow that went all the way from the Colorado River to the ocean but a bunch of steps along the way as these uh, marshes kind of connected with each other thanks to this additional water and we went and bushwhacked our way across these burned out tamarisk and uh, had to use our canoes as as battering rams to get through these incredibly dense brush and what we discovered at the end of that uh, was that there was maybe five cfs of fresh water from the pulse flow that was pouring into the rio hardy and um, a, a scene in the book is to, is when Jorge discovered this. The rest of us were a little distracted from having 
done this pretty horrendous bushwhacking and he called us over and showed us this little trickle of water that was going into the swamp and he he said the rivers are communicating and uh and went on to talk about how you know this really historic connection had just occurred between freshwater and saltwater that had been pretty rare over the last 50 years or so even though it was a only pretty small amount of water that was used in this pulse flow event it uh, was successful in restoring a bunch of habitat and getting a bunch of willow and cottonwood and other native species established and allowing them to then sustain themselves as they reached down into the water table and were able to grow so it's something that uh, was a big experiment but i think has a lot of potential going forward for that region Prior to you departing the upper southwest United States and heading down to the pulse flow at the Delta, you're in Hanksville, Utah. You overhear a gentleman talk about water and how water can be used and wasted. Can you just talk about that a little bit, what you heard this guy say? Yeah, I was in, I was out yeah, exploring some canyons around uh, Hanksville there and went into the gas station, uh, which people who have explored that area or, or run Cataract Canyon might be familiar with. It's the Hollow Mountain gas station in, in Hanksville that's blasted out into a cliff there. Um, and I was waiting in line uh, behind a, a few people, and the cashier was going on and on to this to somebody at the counter as everyone else was waiting there. And he was talking about uh, how they were wasting water. He kept talking about, they don't understand what they're doing. They're, they're wasting water down there. Like, we need this water for farms. And it dawned on me as he, he was, I was kind of paying more, more and more attention as he went along that he was talking about the pulse flow. And I knew it was about to, to happen down in Mexico. And, uh, you know, I'd obviously crossed the, the delta before that and knew the region pretty well. So uh, I was suddenly paying more attention, it seemed like, than the man who was receiving the other end of this lecture about the, the water being wasted. And as I thought about his perspective on the pulse flow and, and calling this water uh, that was being released for environmental purposes, referring it to it continually as waste, he was calling the, the pulse flow a, a diabolical scheme or something. And it occurred to me that that's kind of how we see water in the West uh, in kind of no matter where we fall in on the political spectrum, it's, it's tempting to view uh, water in this way because it's such a precious resource out here and it's so in such high demand that the idea of dumping water into the desert for bird habitat is kind of goes against the way we hear water talked about so much as something that's really needed for these cities or farms or industry or whatever it may be and so that's something that I play with through that that whole essay is like what how do we define waste in some ways, the, the the Colorado River, you know, of course it dries up before it gets to the ocean, but we use it pretty efficiently by some measures. Um, some studies show that every drop of water in the basin is reused 17 times as it makes its way down from the headwaters to where it eventually dries up. If you use, if you're in the basin... The Colorado River Basin. Yeah, yeah, yeah and you use water in a in a household use, in a shower, toilet, whatever it is, more than 90% of the water that gets used in that context ends up back in the river after it's treated. So as you move downstream in different 
towns and cities along the way take the water and use it and treat it. It ends up back in the river, and uh, this happens over and over. It happens with with farming as well. Um, as more of a more gets lost in the farming system, I think something like fifty percent used for irrigation ends up back in the river. So it's you know there's a lot of inefficiencies to it, but it's also a, a lot of recycling goes on. I guess you could say. So moving around in the uh, the chronological time frame, but still on this idea of the pulse flow, the delta. Hanksville and the conversation around the gentleman who's talking about wasting water. When you are on your first trip from the headwaters of the Green River down to Mexico, you get a resupply of food to include Snickers and some beer, but also a book, a uh, a book that you read. And then as you are heading down the river on the pulse flow a few years later, the, the essays in that philosophical book uh, come back to you. First off, the author's name of the of the essay? Georges Bataille. Georges Bataille? Uh-huh. What's the essay called? The Accursed Shares. The Accursed Shares, French writer who um, writes this economic theory. Can you tell us more about this economic theory that, that you're thinking about in relationship to the idea of waste, the, the comment from the gentleman in Hanksville, and the pulse flow and habitat and water? Yeah, he's a really fascinating uh, eccentric philosopher from the early uh, 20th century the first half of the 20th century and uh, he started out as kind of like a surrealist novelist um, but then he started doing this uh, philosophy based on a theory of economics where um, waste how a society choose chooses to waste um, it's surplus resources, it's excess. He's got this really fascinating theory where uh, waste becomes the, the center point of how he views an economy. Um, so he's talking about you know things like the building of the pyramids. There's no utilitarian value to that. It's not really helping uh, the society accrue more uh, surplus value in, in terms of grain or uh, gold or whatever, however the society might measure value, um, but there are these big displays of of waste in in his theory. Same goes for the the Aztecs who are involved in these really intricate systems of sacrifice, or other societies um, like tribes in the northwestern U.S. that would practice the the potluck ceremony where they would, uh, a wealthy individual in the society would give away a lot of their wealth in these big ceremonies. So he was fascinated with the way that different societies burned off their surplus, and he thought that was a really important thing to do to maintain order in a society. Uh, same goes for Tibetan. He, he really likes uh, Tibetan history, where so much of resources of the society were going to these uh, monastery systems, places that weren't producing any product but were you know, engaged in this really rich culture and religious production of a different kind, I guess. So I take that theory that, that he was using to apply to all these different societies, and as I was going down the, the pulse flow, I was thinking about it, um, and it's something that I get into quite a bit in the essay, is um, how do we, as this modern 21st century uh, U.S. society in the southwestern U.S., especially where water is something that has such value to us, how do we see efficient use and how do we see waste of water? 
and the, the the man in the gas station was talking about how you know dumping water into the desert to make bird habitat was a complete waste and that's kind of how we've been trained to think about water in a lot of ways is that if water isn't going to grow a crop or turning a water meter in a house or being used for uh, natural gas production or whatever the uses we have for it, then it's somehow being wasted by being left in the riverbed or being allowed to go down and, and flow into the sea. So it's, it's more of a, a question that runs through the whole essay than an answer, but it's something that I find really fascinating of maybe... The, well, in, environmentalists, conservationists often talk about we need to be, we need to waste less, we need to use things more efficiently. But in this case, they're actually asking us to, to waste more if you look at it from a certain perspective. And if we waste the water, I'm putting that in air quotes, then it becomes habitat, which is, um, I say in the book, waste considered from a perspective beyond narrow self-interest has a different name. It's called sharing. And in this case, we're sharing the water, which could have been used for any of these profitable enterprises to share it with bird habitat and to, to share it with species that aren't our own. And it's just a fascinating idea for me. So uh, let's talk about your book for a little while, just the, the crafting of it. This is your first book, Confluence. Uh, how did you write this book? Yeah, the, the book was written in a lot of different stages. Pretty much every one of the trips that appears in the book, I was doing the trip with the goal of uh, having a magazine article or an essay come out of it. So I was writing the whole time I was out there in my notebook, uh, taking notes, and then came back and, and typed it up and then kept editing the essays. Um, some of them came out you know, a few years ago as articles in Canoe and Kayak magazine, and then other ones I um, wrote just for the book. Um, but all of them went through a bunch of drafting to try to make them flow with each other through the book and, and make them build on each other as you go along. You you build this into an essay, and then you're, you're exchanging it back and forth with an editor and just going through layers and layers of, of, of rework, I assume. Yeah, and I uh, took a course uh, in environmental nonfiction writing with some really great Southwestern writers, uh, Amy Irvine, uh, Craig Childs, and, and Mark Sundin, and I worked with each of, of those writers over a couple of years um, on essays that were in the book, and all of them were, were really helpful in bringing their perspective uh, to it, um, and Amy Irvine, I, especially, I worked with her the most, and she was and the book would have never gotten published if it wasn't for, for her help, both in the editing phase and in helping me connect with uh, this great publisher, Tory House Press. She just wrote a book for them, kind of a feminist critique of, of Edward Abbey called Desert Cabal, which is a really great book if you're a, an Edward Abbey fan. And then Craig Childs, who I was working with as well, just uh, wrote a little book for Tory House Press. So it's uh, it was really, you know exciting for me to go from being a student of these uh, these really great writers that I've admired for a long time to publishing a book at the same publishing house mm -hmm. as, as both of them. And it's been an exciting couple years for me as a writer. In your essay in the book, the essay is called Rio. You also bring in two other authors into the conversation, Charles Bowden being one of them and Ed Abbey being another, both Southwestern 
writers. They, they were based in the Southwest. They wrote about the Southwest. Both authors, they both have died in our lifetimes. You reference them as friends. They wrote about dark and hard topics. They said things people didn't always want to hear. They pissed people off. Why did you bring them into the story? Why are they in that essay? I was a big Edward Abbey fan in high school. Still am. But as I was uh, first doing my first writing and doing a lot of reading in, in high school, I read pretty much everything I could get my hands on from, from Edward Abbey. And I still joke sometimes that he's my my favorite young adult writer. <laughs> um, but uh, he's he's great. And kind of towards the end of his career, he had some overlap with a, a young, promising uh, nature writer named Charles Bowden. Um, and Edward Abbey did a lot of work to try and promote Bowden's books towards the end of, of Abbey's life. Because Abbey was the elder yeah. in the relationship yeah. Yeah, of those two. So, Bowden wrote his first couple books in the years right before Abby died, and so they were they were friends. and And Abby was kind of passing the torch on to to Bowden as the next southwestern nature environmentalist writer. And Bowden ended up taking a turn throughout his career more and more to look at uh, the violence along the border and and the causes of that and the effects of that. So, for my essay on on the Rio Grande. I draw on a, an essay that Charles Bowden wrote about Edward Abbey. Um, about Edward Abbey, kind of had these uh, this one take on immigration that was pretty similar to the rhetoric we hear today about we need to close down the border and, and stop population growth. His goal was to you know have less pressure on the environment, but he said some things that that look pretty problematic in the current context. And Ed Abbey said these Ed, things, yeah. yeah. And uh, Charles Bowden called him out on that mm. um, in one of his later essays. Charles Bowden died in 2014. And one of his last essays was about Edward Abbey's views on immigration. And so these were uh, different threads that were going through the story, mostly because I ended up kind of trying to contrast these white uh, writers like myself and uh, Edward Abbey and Charles Bowden, who were talking about this topic without being you know that intimately involved with it though Bowden became pretty closely involved through his reporting on the border for many decades with I was trying to contrast that with the you know horrendous stories that were coming out of these women and children uh, especially fleeing up to this fleeing up across the border and then ending up in this family detention center in Dilly Texas which um, I spoke with some people who have worked there trying to uh, help process uh, asylum claims. So the, the contrast between uh, these you know, people writing about the issue with some distance to uh, the people that are actually going through it is something that I was using as somewhat of a, a self-critique, maybe, of, um, of I know that it's not quite my place to to be writing about this but it's something that we need to also be aware of and and thinking about um because it's it's such a horrible uh stain on our our country's legacy right now of things that are happening right now that we'll look back on and and be pretty horrified um in the history books i think so i bring in edward abbey and, and charles bowden to to help me figure out how to how to think about these things 
are you writing? You're gonna write another book? You, 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 did you enjoy it enough to do it again? I did. Yeah. Um, I you know this book was um, a little bit more personal, I think, than what I planned when I started writing it. The first essays, especially with uh, the the death of my mom and uh, some other you know trying to write about things that were that were really difficult to live through. Um, so having finished the book and put it aside, I feel really good that it's there and that, and I like the way it came together, but I've really enjoyed, uh, in the, uh, months since I finished it working for the newspaper where you're never allowed to, to say I in any of the, <laughs> the articles and it's not personal at all. So yeah, I'm sure I'll come back to it at some point. You got anything <laughs> else you want to add? I don't know. Maybe it sounds like it's, it's too serious. Um, there's some, <laughs> parts parts of the book too that when we we get to talk about robots and uh artificial intelligence yes. intelligence and uh bring in some uh stories of you know getting myself into trouble out there by not planning ahead very well and running out of water out in the desert and a lot of the time just kind of stumbling around out mm-hmm. there both in in terms of trying to figure out how to put all these stories together that I'm coming across and just trying to how to figure out how to survive in these beautiful places mm-hmm. um, and make it home from the river trip in one piece. <laughs> I think it's a good point. There is a lot of fun in the book and a lot of really cool stories. And it's a really rich book and just amazing landscapes that you could travel through that you describe that are that are vastly different. Let's talk about you as a boater for a little bit and, and tell us about that. What What's your what's your your go to craft? Ooh, that's a that's a tough question. I've, I have too many boats. Um, How many is too many? <laughs> I don't. It would take a while to count them. I have to think about it. You got double digit boats or just single digit? Mm, probably double. All right, all right. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I've been kayaking since I was in middle school, and I still have the most fun doing whitewater kayaking or even sea kayaking. Um, but it kind of depends on the river. Uh, the San Juan here, which is class two, uh, been enjoying canoeing the most mm. because. You have to kind of pay attention more than you do in a raft or a kayak and, um, and you know, be a little bit more on it as you're going through. And it's fun to work with somebody else in the canoe to, to go through the rocks. I'm, I'm not a great canoeer, but I've, I've been enjoying that. And then uh, always nice to be able to carry a bunch of stuff down river on a raft, too, and have that option <laughs> mm-hmm. and stay in the winter and stuff, stay warm and dry on top of a big raft if you're on a river like the San Juan. Mostly just like being out on the river and enjoy any boat that I'm in out there. So then, uh, so I've got a random question for you. I informed you of this before we before we sat down today so you could maybe think about it. But um, as a writer, a writer on a computer using a keyboard, do you put one space with the space bar after a period or two spaces with the space bar after a period? Always one. I feel very strongly about this as somebody who's had to edit uh, magazine articles when I was working for Canoe and Kayak Magazine and had to go through and delete all the double spaces that some people would put in there. So People like me. <laughs> Is that true? Oh, Are yeah. you a double spacer? Oh, yeah, Uh-oh. but I was taught Uh-oh. that way. You know, typing class in <laughs> yeah. high school, double space, click, click. I don't know why uh, that was ever something that where people were taught to do. I was taught to do it, too. I encourage everybody to unlearn that. <laughs> Zach Podmore, he wrote a new book. It came out in um, the fall of 2019. It's called Confluence, Torrey House Press, T-O-R-R-E-Y, Torrey House Press. 
that's the best place to get it unless you go to your local bookstore. And you can find Zach Podmore online at ZachPodmore.com. And you have a Twitter? Zach underscore Podmore, Z-A-K underscore Podmore, P-O-D-M-O-R-E. And there's a, that's the place to pick up his, uh, his journalistic writings. You can also find him in the Salt Lake Tribune. Zach, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Sam. It's been fun. This episode of The River Radius was recorded and produced by me, Sam Carter. All music is written and produced by Diabolical Sound Platoon. A tome-sized thanks goes out to Zach Podmore for digging in so deep on his writing. We are always looking for more great show topics and leads on river culture. You can reach us by email, hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. I'm getting excited that I was going to give him some scraps or something. Usually we don't have any traffic out here. Well, we'll see if it comes to that.